welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. We are back with episode 130 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Thank you for joining us tonight or today, whenever you're listening, I guess. Um, on episode 130 here, we have Dr. Allison Menzies joining us to talk about Squirrel Camp in the Yukon. And uh, But before we get to that, Tristan, how's it going, fella? Oh, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, you know, I just got back from that 3D shoot, which we'll talk about in a bit, but I'm uh, I'm also finding that the the days now are coming in that well the days might still be hot uh, the evenings are starting to cool down and give you a little reprieve from the heat and it's starting to signal that it's the the best time of year is fast approaching yeah getting a little bit shorter and we have had a few cooler nights but uh so that's kind of getting the blood going a little bit you know and uh pair pair that up with the the 3d archery shoot and all the uh you know, it's kind of got got the purchasing going pretty heavy for Moose Camp here in preparation oh, yeah, for the have, fall. <laughs> yeah, you guys had a Moose Camp meeting eh, the other day. Uh, how did that go? Yeah, it was good, man. It was it was kind of it was icebreaker for a couple guys uh, on the call. I mean, Sheldon hasn't been to this. He's been to plenty of Moose Camps, but he hasn't been to this Moose Camp. And then uh, uh, Trent also joined us for the meeting. It's going to be his first time in this Moose Camp as well. Also, an experienced moose camp fella but uh went really good good for an icebreaker meeting we just had it on zoom and uh just went over the gear list and talked about how things are going to be different this year it sounds like the water is going to be at uh fingers crossed a good level and yeah we're just uh kind of prepping and then you know we're going to circle back probably here in about a month month and a half and put the final touches on and make sure everything's showing up. But, uh, I've been, I've how, been, how many props are you bringing? I think we're going to do three total. So two extras, two extras, two extras for your boat alone. Yep. And you're bringing, you're bringing this swell fish up. Yeah. That's going to kind of be the real, the test here in, in a lot of ways I would imagine. Yep. That is, uh, the, the test. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that too, because you know, that thing's going to fit on the train pretty easy. It packs down into like, two suitcase size packages right plus the yeah. plus the motor obviously but uh fully packable and it's uh super stable and really comfy to ride and especially compared to a canoe so um you know you can you don't have to worry about standing up in there and, and rocking the boat say you know it's it's very stable and uh i'm looking forward to testing that baby out i was talking to the fellows from swellfish uh yesterday actually so they have a pretty wicked customer support there uh just go on their website and you message them off i message them off my phone and it just it's actually just a text message and they text message you right back so within minutes Hmm. i'm talking to one of the owners of swellfish and getting advice on on whatever it is i'm looking for and if they can't (laughs) help you he like he i was asking him about props and uh he, he said, he's like, you know what, just talk to the guys over at uh, this marine shop. They're the dealer for Western Canada, and they will, uh, they'll fix you up. So, 
haven't, nice. haven't called there yet, but that's on tomorrow's to-do list. <laughs> that's kind of exciting though. Like you can really like get to know the, the, the boat and like such a different level. I'm also thinking that that thing might've survived the old Brock fiasco that we got ourselves into last year, just a little bit better. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, yeah, it could have, but I don't know how good it would have been at handling just, uh, pounding over that shallow riffle all the time if it was dragging bottom you know what i mean true 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 yeah well you'll uh you'll put it through the paces this time around so yeah i'm, I'm looking look- forward to it i'm like excited to hear how that thing handles and uh, you know you're gonna stack it up against you know a pretty pretty like apt canoe you mm-hmm. know what i mean so yeah exactly so um We'll report back on how that does, obviously. But if you guys are interested in checking out Swellfish or anything, they have all their gear, all their equipment, head over to swellfish.co. And uh, any inflatable boat, they have pack rafts and all kinds of stuff. So very comfortable, very affordable, and customer service is next to none. So check them out, swellfish.co. I'm actually surprised you're worried about the train. Like, if anything, I think you're gonna experience the packing benefits with the with the uh, the truck. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I mean, you you have less space in the truck. The train's got a ton of space. Yeah. Well, last You'll year we able- just had the canoe on the roof, right? Yeah. Well, that, but it also looked. You might, you know, you might save a little gas mileage too here with the yeah with the swellfish being in the back. Totally, hundred percent, man. So, either way. It'll be pretty sweet, man. I'm really looking forward to having that boat up there on that river. You're, you're not the swellfish isn't the only new thing you're packing, eh? You, you got a couple other things just for Moose Camp or in the in the lick of time for Moose Camp here. Yeah. So I did uh, after last year's trip. Obviously, is a bit of an eye opener, and um, not knowing what we were going to experience on the river. Kind of made made some stupid mistakes, not packing waders being one of them. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just. I thought the river was going to be too deep for us to use waders. Yeah. Why was I wrong? Yeah. And then uh, just my sleeping bag that I had up there, which is uh, the coldest rated sleeping bag that I had, was not sufficient either. I was, you know, cold a couple nights. So been making some upgrades. Uh Picked up some new waders. They just arrived today, actually. Um, just went with Cabell's brand waders with the uh, felt bottom. So fingers crossed, they actually keep me dry. I'll definitely be bringing up some some goop to fix those babies up if they do leak. Um, bought a new sleeping bag, uh, a minus thirty rated one, and uh, I'm gonna throw in a like a fleece liner in it, just a fleece blanket. So I'm hoping uh, that does a trick for this year because. Generally, we had a pretty nice nice year last year temperature-wise, so if it's a little bit cooler out, hopefully I'm prepared for that in the tent now. And then uh, I also picked up like um, another waterproof bag, um, like, uh, yeah, just like a waterproof duffel like a dry bag. dry bag. Dry bag, yeah. And uh, a 70-liter duffel bag and intended for like carrying gear into the boat and traveling with in the boat kind of thing. So... The, I have one of the the sea line, you know, top access bags, but it's for boat travel and for, for gear and stuff. It's really, it's not that convenient to like reach in there and get stuff out quickly. And uh, Jamie bought that, brought that uh, duffel bag up last year. 
and I really liked the look of that. So I picked uh, I picked one up on Amazon, and it was pretty reasonable as well. Um, and then it's it's got that so it's got that big access on top. It's just one of the fold over with the two clips on it, and uh, you can either carry it with your hand or throw it over your shoulder for the for the duffel wise. So it'll be spare clothes, um, like spare gitch and stuff in case you get wet. Plus uh, probably camera gear, lunches will go in there and any extra hunting gear that you need. And it's all right there in your duffel bag and easy to carry to the boat. Keeps it all dry. And if you have a catastrophe, hopefully have it zipped up. Not zipped up, but, uh, you know, clipped up and she'll float down the river with you. Yeah, you laugh. You laugh at uh, thinking of, uh, you know, contingency planning like that. But let me tell you. Yeah. It happens quick. quick. Yeah. Yeah. Shit goes south quick. Generally without warning, too. Yeah. But that's a few things that I'm excited to try out. The sleeping bag should be here soon. I got the duffel bag. I'm going to try on the waders tomorrow. Can report back on that. And then, uh, yeah, all I need to do is make sure I got some uh, few pieces of copper to toss around, ready to roll. And I think we should be good to go. Yeah, man. Press them. Yep. That'll be good. What's going to be the first thing in your pack here? First thing in my pack? Probably, well, first few things that are on the list. Um, one is like a battery bank, a little battery bank, which I also have to get another one because mine shit the bed this year. Um, then uh, water tablets and a water, like something to hold water in. Yeah. So clean yeah. water. And then uh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Should be good well, to go from there. Yeah, don't forget your tag. Yeah. I thought you were going to say Wolof for sure, but I'm pretty sure you're you're wearing it on the way up anyways. That'll be on my body at all times, I'm pretty sure. So um, head to toe, Wolof, especially, you know, in the sleeping bag, in the waders, it's going to be key for not only keeping you dry and keeping you warm. Even in waders, you know, the, the waders always say they're breathable, but they're not. So you need some like a good layer that will keep wicking the moisture off you and keep you warm when you are a little bit damp. You know what I mean? I don't know what waders you got that are pretending to be breathable, but I've never had a pair. Like the neoprene is not breathable whatsoever. No. So Yeah. But yeah, I was thinking too, the, the other cool thing when we were in camp was that I'm pretty sure I only took the bowl of off once and that was when we got absolutely soaked. And uh, I had to dry it out. But uh, yeah, other than that, that was like my driest piece of equipment in camp that whole that whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it, it keeps you fresh with that antimicrobial properties to, to help you out there. So if you're wearing them all week, you don't got to worry about stinking out your buddies. Pretty Maybe sweet. for different reasons. But yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Um, well, if we, yeah, if we haven't convinced you yet, you know, like the place to get your wool love there would what be wool.lovechase? That's correct. Wool.love. And you can pick up the more you buy, the more you save, right? So they got all kinds of packages there. And uh, if you're serious, serious about getting into it, like you might as well get yourself some uh, long underwear, bottoms, tops, socks, and you can get a beanie as well. They have a few different styles. I've been wearing the long sleeve. The The nice thing about the wool love too is it fits my monkey arms and long yeah. legs. So 
It's uh, it's really nice to wear. It's really comfortable, and it's become like a daily wear for me as well. It's uh, some stylish stuff. You can wear it out to wherever, wear it to the gym, wear it out to hockey or whatever too. So it's not just utilized under one one thing. But wool dot love, get loaded up before fall. Don't get caught without it out there. <clears throat> Speaking about getting caught, how about that mobile carp we shot the other day there? Huh. Well, I'm just glad we all hit it. To be to be clear, <laughs> I was worried. Sounded like That's a too- few folks lost some arrows on that thing. Yeah, like not only did they like th- there's better spot they could have maybe had that than right at the back end of a pond. Yeah, I, I don't know if they uh, were trying to keep the theme consistent there, but uh, yeah, they probably could have put it like between one of those big targets, you know. So if you lost an arrow, yeah, you know, at least there's the backing for it, but. If you missed, your arrow was going right into the ditch, right into the slough. Yeah, but for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, we uh, we shot the uh, 3D fundraiser shoot for uh, April and Brad Hack on uh, April Willis, Brad Hack on Saturday, this past Saturday or the what what date of August would that be? Chase the tenth, sixth, sixth. Yeah, today's the tenth. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I I hadn't done a 3D shoot in like. God, it must be like seven or eight years. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really the first time this year that I was able to to stretch out the bow a little bit. And uh, I think we did a total of like 26, maybe close to 30 targets. And I think we shot pretty good. I don't know. Brad yeah. was pumping us up a little bit there. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Especially for being being our first time with for uh, like full rodeo like that. Pretty proud. Pretty proud of how we did. Yeah, it was a lot of fun too. Like, uh, you know, a lot more dynamic way to practice bow shooting than just plugging the same target at 20 yards, which is fine, right? But this is definitely a different spin, right? Yeah, 100%. And the cool thing was they had some really steep angle shots there on that uh, on that sheep range. And then some of the longer shots on that, that big bison target was cool too. Um, learn quickly to not leave your adjustable sight at 60 yards. And then try yeah. to take a shot at 20 yards. You'll be in the dirt for sure. But other than that, I think it uh, went pretty good, that shoot. Yeah, it was, and it was good to see the community come together. We had a few people out supporting. So obviously we were there, um, the Brandon Wildlife Association, which is like just an amazing spot. I was like in shock at how much stuff they had there between like the the long rifle range, the the three gun range, the, the skeet shooting, the archery, all the archery opportunities, the fact that they have a 3d course right there, like pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they, they were great hosts. And then, uh, obviously April and hack were just, uh, working their butts off and yeah. And then, uh, Danny's whole hog chipped in to, to provide some food for folks. So like a really, a really kind of great event, I thought. Yeah. So Danny's Danny stepped up and, uh, put up some funds to, to feed everyone there. So some pulled pork, potato salad, a little bit of coleslaw, and uh, it was a, a bunch of his barbecue sauces, and it was a, a good little feed that came with the shoot as well. So thanks to Danny for doing that. Yeah, and like you said, we shot not bad, and we also got to try out the bows and different angles and different everything. So really fun event. Uh, so and if you want to continue to, to support 
April and Hack just let us know. We're, we're going to try and do what we can for them as they prepare to go to Italy to represent Canada in the 3D archery challenges or uh, worlds there, right? Yep, that's right. Pretty sweet. Um, I think old hacky boy there shooting the trad bow and April has a more modern setup. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to see how they do. I know they're both both very dedicated to, uh, to the sport and uh, and I'm, I'm sure they'll do well. So totally totally we're gonna wish them well and keep you posted on how they do yeah but uh that's all from us folks on this intro and stay tuned for uh ali menzies dr allison menzies here on this podcast let's roll it this podcast is brought to you by jiffy ice augers if you're looking to upgrade your ice auger for this coming ice fishing season be sure to head over to jiffyonice.com and check out their full selection of ice augers and uh today we'll welcome dr allison menzies to the panoramic outdoors podcast ali can we, we could say ali for sure yeah okay <laughs> ali thanks for joining us how's it going today going uh really well how are both of you doing pretty good feeling busy and uh maybe not as uh not as productive as I normally am this time of year, but <laughs> thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm good too. Busy. Things are busy um, between just life, life stuff. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's familiar with it. And so, Ali, we've brought you on today to talk a little bit about some of your past research to do with links. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about your upcoming research and what you're tapped into and kind of your journey along the way through that all. But before we do, we have to ask all our guests our, our five burning questions, and that's just to get to know you a little better. Um, so we'll start with number one. If you were to have a last meal, what would a, your last meal be? This is a very important question. That all our guests get this one right somehow. Though. This is like the hardest question I'll probably be asked today. But um, <laughs> I would say a giant ice cream sundae with all of the possible toppings i think ice cream is my favorite food food what, group so when you say toppings what what like what classifies as a topping is there something on there because i've been a part of the uh the menzies pizza special and i was not a believer until i actually tried it and just to be clear this is a what is it a banana pepper pe uh, feta and is it pineapple pizza yeah yeah and I was skeptical at first, but let me tell you, you got to try it. Um, yeah, it's the spicy, sweet, uh, salty combo. So minus the spicy, I would say that's the ice cream uh, combination too. So like salty peanuts and stuff, sweet, I don't know, brownie, cookie dough, all of the above. I don't know. I'm like really not discriminatory when it comes to ice cream toppings and flavors. So to know oh, ice cream ice cream three times on the weekend just to keep uh, a little person happy so uh i guess maybe it starts young i don't know <laughs> um I'm, I'm guessing you do a fair bit of academic reading but is there is there a book or something that you're tapped into right now that you're you're reading and enjoying or uh, something that you would recommend um, actually, I, so I read a lot of, when I do read for pleasure, it tends to be like mind melting, the equivalent of like rom-coms and book form, just because I do read a lot of in mm -hmm. intelligent things during the day. But 
I actually just um, received a copy of um, Chantal Theola's book about Métis spirituality and some of her work for her PhD. And I'm reading that and it's all about, um, yeah, she interviewed Métis elders and, and folks about spirituality and, and religion and beliefs. And it's just really interesting to read about all the different things that comprise that. So that's kind of my, I read a chapter every couple of weeks and then put it down and switch back to my mind melting rom-com and then I'll switch back <laughs> to that. So um, yeah, I, I like to read a little bit about indigenous issues and things like that but when it gets too heavy switch back to the mm. um nice romantic comedy happy ending fairy tale type book so mm -hmm. <laughs> i i haven't read a good rom-com and <laughs> ever i'm gonna say but i i am familiar with that 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 other book that you did mention it's interesting to to uh think of the space that uh, Métis spirituality occupies in the sense that it, it it really seems to be getting reclaimed in a lot of ways in the sense that it, you know that I don't as far as I'm aware not a lot has been uh, formally studied and published about it right it's it, it really is a rediscovering of how things were it's kind of like real life would it be archaeology or uh well, with the whatever the yeah, term anthropology. is there yeah. anthropology thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness we have a doctor on the show <laughs> but yeah yeah super interesting to think about because uh, obviously we tuned in lots to um the you know the indigenous ways of knowing but also the uh the catholic ways of knowing but the, to think about how those would kind of merged and in some ways and uh what the practice actually looked like would be uh you know a whole different level Cool, yeah, sure. but um, maybe maybe more on the wrong comms next time. <laughs> uh, do you have a conservation inspiration or like someone or something that you look to to kind of like or someone that kind of brought you through or along or or maybe it's a, a, a something like a links even I don't know like what the, where, where's the inspiration come from? I feel like I should have a very solid answer to this, but. Um... I so I think it's it's difficult to answer because it's changed so much over time like when I first started out in this field I think it really was just my first um the first female uh ecology professor I ever had um just really was encouraging and like loved nature so much she was a champion of nature and really just encouraged me to to pursue um research and kind of exploring that side of, of what university can offer because going into sciences as a young person like 99% of my classmates including myself thought we were all going to become medical doctors um, and it wasn't until like meeting her I really even understood that in, like studying the environment and learning about animals was a career path that one could even follow in terms of kind of this more academic focused career path. Um, and then it, it continued to be my supervisors and the people I kind of met along the way at conferences and that I worked with. But I guess back to the previous question, as I've learned a lot more about Métis culture and, and things like that, I think 
it's turned into more of this like inherent responsibility and responsibility to past generations and future generations and it's become a lot more of this like I don't know philosophical intangible motivation of what I want the world to look like for future generations and, and what I think maybe past generations wanted it to look like and all of our collective responsibilities to those people and I do actually think about that more now than I kind of ever did. And I think that's really what kind of inspires me now is, is listening to people talk about things like that and thinking about, I don't have children, but I have a nephew and you both have children and just thinking about like what we want them to experience in the future. Like I want them to be able to see a moose in the wild or a bear or not just in zoos and things like that. And I think that that kind of has become a bit more of my inspiration than than one individual but there's definitely a lot of people along the way that have inspired me and helped me get here but Mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting because not only is that typically i find our hardest question that i i ask folks when they when they come on the podcast and we normally get a uh a uh kind of a varied answer like that like I think we have one person say that they they draw inspiration from their grandparents like right off the hop, but most of the time it it spurs some reflection, which is great. I find um, the other thing though that I I really appreciate is uh, when you're talking about thinking about generations here through through what we kind of our legacy in some ways. Um, I find I don't know Chase how you feel, but when whenever we have conversations around conservation. There can be folks coming at it from multiple angles, but it always seems like that's one of like the interwoven factors is what are we really leaving behind here? And, you know, what what are the next few generations going to have to look at here on the landscape? So, yeah, uh, I think that's hopefully maybe a, a real unifying, <laughs> I hope, factor for for uh, for our work here. All righty. And then... Um, uh, hopefully this next one's a little easier for you, but uh, what's something you would never go afield without, or you don't leave the house without pick one. You can. Um, well, choose the afield one because the house is probably my phone. Yeah. Just <laughs> a boring answer, but um, having done a lot of field work. Um, oh my gosh. This actually is kind of hard. So definitely like my water bottle, but I think, um snacks I always when it was winter and I was in the field I always shoved my pockets full of cookies and brownies and like high energy high calorie snacks in case I got stuck somewhere or or whatever things that don't freeze um and usually a gps because I get lost very easily in the forest and would always like mark the road and follow it back um that's sage advice for sure (laughs) I've, I've been there too. So like, I'm not gonna, we actually use something called eye hunter here in, uh, in Manitoba and it's been, it saved my bacon more than once. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I would say really good. The only thing I spent a lot of money on for field work was Marina wool base layers. Um, because, my external layers would get ripped up by trees and destroyed and it was just not worth it paying lots of money for all of that when you could just layer up but good base layers 
were life-changing when I first bought them and like I think were the reason I survived four years of winter field work was mm. you wouldn't happen to be wearing wool love would you <laughs> <laughs> also like I don't work for any company that sells these things I just like <laughs> yeah no. oh that's funny and uh the the snacks comments interesting too because believe it or not this is not the first time Ali and myself have chatted um and I remember talking to you earlier about the uh, the kind of the way nutrition shifts, the you know, kind of the more more north, but also the the the, the closer you get to the, the kind of uh, state of nature, we'll call it. Um, so, like the stuffing your your pockets full of cookies, for example. Well, some people might say, "Oh, that's not a." isn't there a granola bar or something but like really at that point it's it's about calories and uh, what's going to kind of get you through a, a very cold and possibly miserable time i would imagine is that kind of your experience with like it, yeah like what was the story we, we were talking about chicken wings weren't we do you remember this yeah i like i, I think yeah um yeah and i think it i guess like to get really deep into it very quickly as like a female there's always potential to have very rough experiences with food or relationships with food and growing up you know food could be seen as this scary evil thing in many circumstances and whatever pressure to eat healthy but all of a sudden going into the field and like it's minus 30 outside you're snowshoeing in four foot deep snow for six hours a day mm-hmm. you're not bringing celery sticks and like <laughs> peanut butter on an apple you're bringing hot chocolate cookies brownies like anything that is just pure energy fast and um, fuel really so it really changed I would say that experience too over the years really changed my relationship to food in terms of what's necessary to fuel your body to do the task at hand um, compared to just the what's healthy and what's like a well-balanced meal Mm -hmm. Um, definitely coming back to city life and not being able to shove my pockets full of cookies when I'm sitting at a computer <laughs> is like a, a quick change. But no, for sure, it, it definitely is a different experience when you're there for survival as opposed to, yeah, you're bored and so you're snacking. I hope you've been in a few urban environments and had colleagues around and you've pulled the, the pocket cookie out in the, in the middle of a meeting maybe and maybe yeah. uh, set the bar at that. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I love it. Um, and if you had a uh, last question here, we're, we're doing great. Uh, if we, uh, do you have any summer or fall plans that are, that are kind of, you're looking forward to anything on the horizon that, that kind of gets the blood flowing? Yeah, I'm actually, so I'm currently in Alaska and at the end of the month, I'm going salmon fishing with my partner and his, um, one of his old uh, supervisors and and his family um which i'm really looking forward to like for the fishing obviously but also just the chance to get out on a boat on the ocean and it's in valdez alaska which is on the coast and there's mountains and whales and sea otters and all this stuff so um really looking forward to that and at the end of august i'm helping teach a field course actually for the University of Guelph 
which is spending a week in the bush with some undergraduate students and my um, current academic supervisor and just uh, teaching students about wildlife and research methods and um, yeah I'm really excited for that it's always fun to it helps you realize how much you've kind of learned over time when you have to teach people and so I always really like interacting with students and realizing that I actually, since I was an undergrad, have learned quite a bit and have some <laughs> stuff to offer to them and, and just hang out and watch them learn too. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm excited for that too. That, that's uh, that's great for you to, to hear that perspective in the sense that I know a lot of folks can tend to head down the path of complaining about how dumb young adults <laughs> are. <laughs> And, and maybe it's just the case that we we've done things uh, we've learned the hard way. If you we've had more opportunities to learn the hard way here for uh, for a few years, so maybe we should <laughs> save them a little misery if we can, in some ways. I'll get back to you after and let you know how dumb they were or smart. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. No, I look at the youth and uh, well, and you know some of my other work I do, and I think I I just can't get out of the way quick enough um, to let these these young folks through the door, but. Uh, I'm slow and old, so they, uh, they've got to deal, contend with that too. But that's our five burners. So you did great. Thanks for enduring that, uh, that onslaught, we call it. Um, so we, we brought you on to, to chat links and kind of some of the research around that, which is, you know, exciting just because of the links themselves, I feel. Um, but what, what kind of led up to this? this whole links journey for yourself. I know a lot of academics, like they, they, like you said, they go into, into school thinking one thing, and then they also find themselves studying, studying an animal up in a Northern rural uh, Canadian community with, uh, you know, a very kind of staggered path as, as to the, how they got there. So what was, uh, what was going on for you when you, when you started off and how did you land up on the links? Um, yeah, so I started off with my bachelor's degree at the University of Winnipeg, and towards the end of it, I started working with um, a professor there who studies bats and bat conservation, and that was my first kind of foray into wildlife ecology and field work, and um, it really amazed me that that was something that I could do for school credit and also to get paid, and also the fact that this professor that was his job. Um, so that really got me hooked on this idea of pursuing wildlife ecology and conservation as a career. Um, and I went on to do my master's with the same professor. And when I was finishing that up, I, I knew that I wanted to kind of gain different experiences with different um, species. Um, and I got connected with a professor at McGill. Um, partially because he studied very interesting things, but partially because he was also born in Brandon, Manitoba, which is where I was born. So it's like a funny little Brandon connection, um, a bit of Manitoba nepotism, which I don't promote nepotism all the time, but this time it really worked in my favor. Um, <laughs> Manitobans can't normally benefit from <laughs> nepotism exactly. too frequently either. So we got to use it when we get it. <laughs> So I started working for him and he was like, I have a few projects going on and one of them involves studying lynx and snowshoe hares and red squirrels in the Yukon. It's like, how do you feel about that? 
and immediately I was like, yes, please. Like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I don't really care what it is. I have no experience with any of those species, but like, let's do this. And so really it was just me being flown up to the Yukon four winters in a row with a few other students being told, figure it out, study links, ask some questions, let's do this. And there's a long-term red squirrel research project that goes on in the Yukon and has for about 30 years. And so they have this research um, camp called Squirrel Camp, and it's right on the Alaska Highway, um, about two hours away from Whitehorse. And it's just these shacks in the woods, but they've been there for 30 years and they've studied red squirrels and how food and temperature and all these different environmental things affect wildlife. Um, but there hadn't been sorry you can yeah yeah i want to ask you more about squirrel camp in a sec in a second but like so prior to getting flown up to the the yukon like i know i know you you come from like an active family that would would do things outside but like what would you say is your your like confidence or experience level of like being in an outdoors person like what uh how did that play in yeah so like my dad took us camping when we were kids but it was definitely like the pitch a tent in a very structured campground and um, things like that. And then doing the work on bats during my undergrad and my master's, we camped a lot, but it was a lot of spring, summer, fall field work. Um, so the opportunity to go spend six months in the winter up north in unheated shacks without electricity I would say my comfort level was zero, <laughs> but um, I had always liked the winter and growing up in Winnipeg or Brandon, I kind of figured there's not many winter climates that, that scare me that much. Um, and yeah, I just, I was, I guess, cautiously optimistic, but I had no, idea. I'd never, I'd never winter camped. I had never done anything like that. Um, so it was a bit of a, a bit of a shock, a bit of an adjustment. Um, the camp itself is like a, there's a cook shack. So a main kind of shack with a wood stove in it. And it has a propane stove and a propane fridge, which we obviously don't need in the winter. Um, and then some couches and a table. And that's kind of the main place where we hang out. And for water, there's just these giant garbage bins that you just take water out of. Um, there's an outhouse and there's a data hut, which has like all of our equipment in it that has a heater that stays at zero degrees or about five degrees all winter. So I slept in the loft of that hut. So it was luckily five degrees all winter. Um, other people chose to be a lot more hardcore and, and slept outside in these unheated like plywood shacks and just have a really big sleeping bag and a hot water bottle I would just like run get into their sleeping bag sleep and then run back into the cook shack that has the good stuff I chose not to because I like comfortable sleeps um and then electricity was solar panels gave us a bit of electricity but obviously it's dark in the winter so we had a generator and we would go into town whenever we needed to to shower and do laundry and, and use internet um, which was about half an hour was the closest town and so 
at first I was like, oh my goodness, a whole winter of this, four years of this, this is going to be intense. But it's actually pretty amazing how quickly you adjust to things like that and, and realize how little you need to survive and, and be happy. And the thing people would always comment on is the outhouse and the lack of showers. And honestly, after like a couple days, a couple weeks, I barely noticed that anymore. And, and you just adjust super quickly and, and everyone around you smells equally bad and <laughs> is equally greasy. But every time we would go into town, the local community knew exactly who we were based on how greasy and dirty we looked now, like <laughs> how sad we looked. But yeah, it was definitely an adjustment in that way. And that was just living. That was never mind the added PhD on there of like actually having to think about things and design an entire PhD worth of research and then actually trap animals and do all that. So there's a lot of life experiences above and beyond the actual I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of curious too though because like when uh like every time I found myself in in a camp that's like limited access or whatever and it's it's nice because you don't have like all these other distractions there, you know? And it's it's kind of relaxing for your mind for sure but as uh as somebody that's doing their phd work up there did you find that helped you kind of focus on your work or was it how did how how do you feel about that yeah i would i would agree that it removed a lot of the distraction of of quote-unquote normal life um we didn't have cell service all the time so we didn't have internet or anything um but you're right in that like there's a lot of internet requirements and reading requirements and all that that go into knowing what you're doing when it comes to a lot of these things. And we had very limited contact with our supervisors for a lot of the time. And so it was kind of, I really felt like it was uh, the four of us. There were four PhD students up there at the same time, which really helped. It was just kind of the four of us against the world. <laughs> like, we're doing this where we all are like talking each other up, being like, yeah, that sounds great, good idea. And then we just go do it. And then by the end of the field season, you go back to Montreal or wherever and you realize if what you did was useful or a complete waste of time. <laughs> um, and like, I'm generally kind of an anxious, stressy person. So I was always a little bit stressed, but I would say I did enjoy the the ability to just kind of shut out a lot of other things. Um, I didn't like, I didn't have to teach when I was up there, obviously. And some students have to teach and, and work other jobs at the same time as they're doing their research. So it was a time where you were up there for a specific purpose and you just did the field work and then you left. So generally I think it actually helped focus on kind of the task at hand. I didn't have to, balance like social events or weddings or like all those other things family re requirements and responsibilities like it really was just do there for a single purpose and me saying that that was good for me is also one of the reasons why field work can be very selective in terms of who can do it and who can't so I mean if you have children and if you have responsibility to family members and need a second job or whatever like you can't just say farewell for six months and go hide in the middle of the forest so the things that i enjoyed also make it difficult for some people but um yeah it was 
it was definitely my favorite part of my degree was getting to just live in the forest and ignore a lot of the problems in the world and stuff too so I feel like this is one of those Facebook memes I see floating around once in a while. Like, would you take a million dollars to live in this cabin for, for six months and <laughs> not talk to anyone else? Oh, people actually have done this. So yeah. <laughs> I got paid very little to do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a million dollars. I could tell you that much. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to trivialize it because people are doing very important research and dedicating their lives to kind of the the path that's laid out there but i do have some questions kind of about like it's it's such a unique situation i i i'm not a researcher myself but like how does sending four students up into the bush in the middle of a lot, or, uh, the yukon pass like the research ethics board uh like i feel like I've looked at some of the psychology research when I was in school and like, they wouldn't even let you ask like a mean question on an exam or like a test. And somehow these four students get shipped away to, uh, to Northern Canada. Like how do you have any insight to that? Or does it just, uh, it is what it is up there. That's a really good question. And I think one that maybe people are starting to think a little bit harder about these days. And in the past, I think it was just like, you know, like the, I walked hill up, I walked to school uphill both ways kind of thing. Like our supervisors were like, I went by myself for six months. And, you know, it's like, okay, but you also could have died. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so now there's a lot more thought about like safety and ethics and, and things like that. And we did have to go through um, a lot of like safety procedures and paperwork and all of that. Um, but you're right in that it is a bit of an odd situation and i mean people do die in remote field camps and and things like that and and obviously that wasn't my experience thank goodness but i think now there's a little bit more thought being put into safety in terms of physical but also um like sexual harassment and and harassment for other things like Mm -hmm because it does happen and people are talking about it more. But the idea of just being, I never really asked my mom how she felt about me getting sent up to the Yukon <laughs> with three other people, but I'm sure she wasn't that happy. But That's funny. it was both like the best experience of my life and yeah. stressful for all these different ways and like nothing happened. And so it's easier for me to be like, oh yeah, it was great. But there were times where I was doing things like, I was snowshoeing and it was eight kilometers off the highway and it was starting to get dark and mm-hmm. you know in those moments you're kind of like hmm mm. I have no cell service I'm running low on like pocket cookies <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. what happens <laughs> if yeah. I don't make it back to the highway and then you do and then it's fine and we all laugh about it later but there's definitely like real safety risks involved similar to anyone kind of being in the bush and, and doing things like that where yeah like things can go wrong and then they go really wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when they don't go wrong, it's like, Oh, that was fun. Everything's good. Yeah. I can, I, I uh, only ask cause I know that the ethics board sometimes can be really strict on some stuff. So I, I was a little flabbergasted, but that's okay. It's not about me. Um, but I also recognize too, like a lot of the time, like our most rewarding pursuits in life often involve the greatest risks. Like, so like, it's not surprising to me that that's probably one of the most memorable times of your career so far is because like it probably was like 
one of the most extreme in a lot of ways. And <laughs> yeah. Um, what was that? What was the camp dynamic? Like, like it, was it, you have, you know, four or five people plugged in there without really any, like much access to the external world. Like you obviously hopefully had a pretty good team environment or like, was it like every person for themselves or like a little bit of column A, column B? Yeah. So we, the four of us, well, five, cause we had a technician as well. The five of us met for the first time ever, like all together at the superstore in Whitehorse. This is a reality. One. This is a reality TV show. <laughs> I just want to... <laughs> We had just like, three of us had just purchased groceries for us for like three weeks and the other two drove up and picked us up and we were all like hey looks like we're going to be spending a lot of time together nice to meet you and then we drive to this camp in the middle of nowhere and spent four years of winters together after that and to this day I am so grateful that it was the four other people that it was because they ended up becoming some of my best friends, like my family up there, really. And the dynamic was obviously there's challenges and people get stressed and whatever, but it could have been way worse. And to this day, I still feel like I've told that to my supervisor so many times, like, you are so lucky that we were who we were, because this could have been so bad, <laughs> just like <laughs> sending people into the middle of nowhere. Um, but over the years, like the numbers of people was very different. Some years in the spring when a bunch of other people would come up, sometimes there were like 18 people in this camp uh -huh. altogether, um, which actually was harder because that's more people and more mm -hmm. personalities and even less space to kind of get away. Um, but I was very, very lucky to really only come across really great people mm -hmm. the dynamic was always really good maybe no it's... no one tried to sabotage the water supply at any point or anything like that <laughs> no honestly there was like nothing terrible that happened it could have like even sabotaging each other's projects like we're all phd yeah. students you know science can get competitive sometimes not necessarily when you're studying hares and squirrels um yeah. maybe more when you're doing something important like medical research or something but just like everyone was so supportive and nice and like i i don't know how it happened but i just kind of count my lucky stars and maybe it's the type of people that are drawn to outdoor wildlife type work um but i don't know i still to this day don't know how i was so lucky to end up with people that were really easy to live with for six months of the year in the winter mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere because um, it's you can't really say that about everyone <laughs> in your life so oh yeah i could uh it would be a very short list i'm sure <laughs> especially that's like a pretty high stress environment to like living in a place that you know doesn't have all the amenities that doesn't have heat in half of the or most of the living quarters yeah. you know i know a deer i know a deer camp it's uh it's hotly debated who has to fill the wood stove every night. Um, you know, that, that is a, that's a tough question to answer sometimes. And we're only there for a week. Yeah, no. And part of it is because it's a long-term 
like study site and so there were some rules that were already kind of in place from previous years like we all rotated on who had to cook and clean for the day so that person like took the afternoon off doing actual field work and and cooked for everyone and then did the dishes and cleaned and then you would rotate so you only had to do that once every however many days and things like recycling and garbage and laundry and all that it was just a one day that we decided to take off we would all go into town together and all do all the chores together so again it was just kind of like a a weird family unit that didn't really fight that much <laughs> and a part of it too is i do think part of it was like getting so much fresh air and getting to experience all these really cool things together we all have similar values and interests because we're all there to study wildlife and these animals and um yeah but we're all also very sleep deprived and smelly and probably hungry half the time so it is amazing that there weren't more catastrophic fights but yeah so and then you're we'll, we'll get to the research here quick i promise um but <laughs> this this concept of squirrel camp just intrigues me so much like entering in as like someone who had maybe done some camping but you know maybe not the extreme backcountry stuff that this might be somewhat classified as like what were a few things that you learned like right off the hop or things that were really handy to know being in the backcountry for yourself um yeah definitely like the food and water and layers because i was there in the winter so summer is a whole different story but um the importance of layering up and layering down once you start sweating and bringing snacks and water and making yourself drink even though you're cold like all of those kind of survival type mm -hmm. things um but i think also the importance of like being able to just sit in silence and sit in like let yourself get bored like there's only so many things you can do we didn't have tv you know we had a limited number of books and games and whatever so just like the creativity involved in having fun when there aren't all these amenities like i think that's important to not go crazy as you know we talked a lot and had conversations about almost everything and made sure we were all kind of having fun but it's important to be able to to keep yourself happy and busy and in your mind when you're just out in the middle of nowhere all the time Mm -hmm. um, I I remember yeah. Les Stroud. He's uh, he snubbed our podcast a couple of times, but um, <laughs> he's yeah. He, uh, he always remarks on bringing his harmonica and just like, is it a uh, is it an essential item? Maybe not, but like maybe psychologically for him, it is. It's pretty essential in the sense that it's easy to pack and uh, brings him some respite from whatever boredom might on set while you're while you're afield so yeah it, the psychological side is a you know maybe one we don't talk about enough yeah and the, Sorry. i guess i was gonna say the last thing is i think there's this misconception that everyone wants to do things in the summer because it's nicer in terms of temperature but the outdoors is so much easier to 
travel in and to exist in in the winter and that's one thing i really learned is i love winter field work and i actually kind of dislike summer field work now because in the winter everything's frozen you can snowmobile over everything you can snowshoe over everything you can see exactly where animals have been and animals haven't been they leave tracks in the snow there's no bears um sure it's cold but there's no bugs like mm -hmm. i think there was that was a big lesson for me that if I have to choose a time to really spend a lot of time outside, I think I now I'm always going to choose the winter because it really was a lot easier to kind of do everything we needed to do. And if you layered up, it was a lot more comfortable than doing things in a boggy and buggy and sweaty summer. And that's kind of one thing I've carried with me too, is like, if I have to choose a time to do all these things where you have to travel across long distances and stuff. I think now I might always choose winter and I overcame my fear of snowmobiles and now love snowmobiling. So yeah. It, it got pretty cold up there though. I'd imagine like one of the challenges I know me and Chase always have is that our, our gear just at some point just starts to break in the winter. It doesn't matter like how gingerly we treat it. Like when it's minus 35 out and you go to unzip something, it just doesn't move. And then all of a sudden you're your bags and four pieces like is is that is that not a thing where you were like i i feel like we we break so much gear all winter <laughs> that i i'm ready to just put my snowmobile away and be like okay i'm done i'm never gonna ride this thing again yeah that's fair we actually weren't allowed to use anything um any like machinery so snowmobiles or we were discouraged to use the generator and vehicles when it was below a certain temperature, just because of that reason. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, on the days where it was that cold, it's never pleasant to, to do anything, but uh, yeah, yeah. The winter's definitely annoying in those ways, <laughs> but I think I got used to that part too. And um, I was really fishing for gear management tips but i, I see that <laughs> you were just banned. If, if i just ban people from using my stuff but that's the the correct way here to yeah. go there's uh yeah. there's a there's a bit of like things that i do enjoy at like minus 30 or minus 35 but it's got to be like a calm day not like zero wind <laughs> zero wind chill but it is there's like a certain um like everything is so frozen that things sound different in the woods mm -hmm. at that temperature that they don't sound like that at any other time of year except when it's like minus 30 or minus 35 mm -hmm. which is kind of cool and things are a lot quieter with like snow on the ground and mm -hmm. i don't know i just find it a lot more peaceful yeah um, the thing that gets me in the summertime is always the bugs because yeah. i'm like <laughs> you're in the middle of the woods and i'm like i haven't seen an animal for hours yet there's a million mosquitoes around me what are these mosquitoes yeah. living on? Yeah. <laughs> That's I, yeah. A mystery, actually. <laughs> I got angry and Googled that one time when I was in the bush and I was like, why why are these mosquitoes here? Like thinking of the boreal, I was like, there's not there can't be that many squirrels out here even that they could like chew on to, to stay alive. Turns out that they actually subsist quite a bit on like nectars and stuff of uh, flowers and it's only the the females who are looking to reproduce who need blood so i guess they only need that blood once and then they're kind of good to go and the the rest of the time they can actually just raise hell for any mammal that wants to cross their path 
what a what a life cycle. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but well, maybe we should talk about research uh, that you know you've actually done, Ali, and not hypothesize about um, blood sucking insects. Um, with the with the lynx research, you were kind of measuring their their activity and kind of what they did. But like, can you can you tell us what that was about and maybe like some of the the purpose behind you know, how how does this help and what are we looking for? Yeah, so um, alongside the squirrel research that's been going on forever, there's also been research in this area on lynx and snowshoe hares for about 40 years. And lynx and snowshoe hares represent um, this interesting cyclic population structure that's used a lot um, as an example in ecology of this predator-prey cycle where snowshoe hares every 10 years they go from being super abundant to being basically gone and then they keep doing that and the lynx follow suit because when their food disappears they also disappear so this work for the last 40 years has been trying to understand why that happens what causes this cycle what causes the hares to crash things like that Um, but one of the issues is that lynx are pretty hard to study (laughs) they're as a predator as an ambush predator they're necessarily very quiet and sneaky and you know humans walking around in the forest are pretty bad at being able to observe them so this cycle this time around we wanted to take advantage of a bunch of technology that had been emerging in the wildlife world so we basically outfitted with snowshoe hares and lynx with gps with activity loggers with audio recorders with heart rate and body temperature loggers with kind of every possible little piece of technology that had emerged over the last decade or two to the point where these animals are basically wearing little Fitbits. That's exactly kind of all the different um, metrics we were getting kind of equaled that plus audio. So sounds. And the purpose was to understand a bit better um, predator prey interactions. So lynx hunting dynamics, how often they kill a hare, um, and also what hares are doing, you know, like which hares get killed. Is it when they're active? Is it when they're inactive? Like what's going on there? And then also understanding how they're responding to environmental variation um, in terms of temperature and snow and food to just look at how that impacts their dynamics, but also potentially thinking about the future and as snow changes because of climate change and as temperatures change how are the interactions between these species also going to change um and that's why there was four different phd students on there because there was multiple species multiple questions multiple years and so we all kind of had a little piece of the puzzle and and mine was looking at um, physiology and behavior in response to temperature and snow and food so um How does their activity change? How does their heart rate change? How does their body temperature change? How does the amount of energy they need in a single day change as a function of of season and and what's going on in their environment? Um, To kind of understand how much food they need, especially from the predator's perspective, how many hares do they have to kill, um, depending on how much energy they're spending and things like that. So it was um, really only thanks to these like devices that we were able to answer a lot of these questions because 
Um, it's not that easy to follow these animals around all day, every day without them. Um, and I would say like one of the most exciting things to come out of it were these audio recorders. Basically they recorded sound 24 hours a day for a week or two. And so the lynx and the hare too, actually, but the hare was a little more boring. It just, you heard a lot of chomping. Um, but the lynx, we wouldn't hear them kind of walking through the woods. We would hear them purring. We would hear them growling. We would hear them uh, chasing and killing prey. And it was with those that we got a better idea of, of how many times a day they eat something or how many times they have to chase something before they actually catch something. And, and all those different, like really specific and fine scale um, hunting questions and behavior questions. and. I didn't have to listen to all those audio recorders, but some poor undergraduates had to listen to <laughs> snowshoe hares screaming as they're being murdered and like all this stuff. But, um, it was really, really cool. And like, just something that, like we had all these questions in mind when we all started our degree, but we didn't know if these audio recorders would work out. So it was kind of like this surprising, really cool outcome was to have all this audio data from, from links. Yeah, and so you're you're published not just in the uh, you know like the Journal of Animal Ecology and Ecology and Evolution here, but you're also published in the Alberta Trapper Magazine. And I was was reading that article, and I was quite struck by like the the audio recordings as, as you describe them there, and that's got to be kind of like a cool experience as a researcher, not just looking at maybe data on a chart in front of you like. Uh, I remember when I was doing research, I would have to look at like the, they called it the general social survey. And it was literally just a list of numbers uh, in an Excel sheet and, um, you know, thoroughly unexciting. But to actually have audio um, reference to the, the thing that you're studying must be super rewarding to, to hear from the research perspective, I would imagine. Yeah, and it... It's also a little bit more of like an accessible type of data for outreach and to get like public excited about it too. So when I talk oh, about like, yeah. oh, I measured heart rate in links, it's kind of like, why? <laughs> like, who cares? <laughs> um, but when you talk about like, yeah, we have these audio recordings of animals in the forest and we weren't even close to them and they just carried this audio recorder around with them and did all, all these things and this is what we heard. It's like a very different type of window into the life of a wild animal and um people have used them on, on something as small as chipmunks and all the way up to like bigger species and now people are developing video cameras that take little clips um so in a similar fashion the battery requirements of them mean that they can't film for 24 hours a day seven days a week but they take little clips of video every four hours or something and there's a project that has them on moose right now and it's just really interesting to see like every four hours there's like a video clip of where the moose is and what they're doing and in some of those video clips you can see it actually they have a video clip of a moose eating its placenta after giving birth but they have video clips wow. of moose eating different vegetations so you can kind of see like what plants they like eating what types of habitats they're in and, and so it's this world of technology that it's existed for a while for humans because the demand is so high, but the demand isn't high enough in terms of like dollars 
to do the same for animals in the way that um, is needed. So sure, I could put a Fitbit on a lynx, but it would die in a day and, and not be able to recharge. So it's like the demand to have the battery power and the, the compact ability of of these devices, it's kind of growing just a bit more slowly than the way human technologies are growing. But we're getting to a place where it's actually pretty freaking cool, <laughs> all of the different things you could put on animals and, and learn about. And it's easier for larger animals because they can carry more weight on their body. Um, mm -hmm. But things are getting smaller and smaller. And so this was the first time anything like this was put on a lynx, like an animal the, the size of a lynx. Um, I, I want... Yeah, I want to ask you more about the tech in a minute, but you you had to actually trap these links to, to get the, the tech on them. And so and not just trap them in the sense of like traditional trapping where you either get it in a, a foothold or a, a Conan Bear style trap, but like get this thing live trapped and which as you've stated, like the links are a notoriously hard animal to even come across. Like what was your experience trapping these things? And like getting getting them in a, a state where you could actually put a put a collar on them to any extent. Yeah, that was for me the most interesting part of of this whole thing. Like I I had zero experience trapping of any kind before I went up there, and um, we actually asked a lot of local trappers from the Yukon for their advice, and it was funny. A lot of them were like, "You're never going to catch a lynx in that thing," <laughs> because we had these like pvc chicken wire box traps that looks like a little dog house basically but made out of chicken wire and pvc pipe and it reminded me of like them. a real big lobster trap almost yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and then they go in and they step on this like pedal thing and and the door drops but um a lot of them are like lynx don't stick their heads into things that you know they have to like duck under or whatever and so we were skeptical at the start, but we knew others had live trapped links before. And so um, we got a bunch of different concoctions of like smelly things from different trappers and um, like castor and um, skunk essence, basically, like really concentrated skunk smell. Mm -hmm. and shiny CDs and all these different things. And we outfitted these traps with all the stuff and I'm not sure if we ever really figured out what worked the best because it was just like a random, uh, like, let's throw everything at this trap. And it wasn't very, like, precise or yeah. systematic. For a bunch of scientists in the camp, to get, like, you kind of threw all the variables a level. Once we were there, kind of desperate. So it was just like, oh, yeah. let's do everything all at once. I think what really mattered the most in the end was actually the location of the trap. Like, if it was a good location where links traveled we were more likely to catch something and we tried to find like um like wildlife trails or things in the forest or, or cut lines or whatever and tried to put them where we thought maybe links would be walking but the places we caught the most were actually like the borders of different links territories because i think they were maybe like patrolling their territories mm. and, and that's where a bunch of links would kind of cross over um anyway um what was yeah. it like catching that first lynx do you remember what it was yeah. like walking up <laughs> yeah it was like because we would check the traps um if it was really cold we had to do it twice a day 7 30 in the morning and 7 30 at night but if it was warmer we could just check them in the morning to limit our 
kind of scent around the traps and so we drive up and down our snowmobile and check all the traps and there was a few days like of nothing of nothing of nothing and that's when i'm starting to think like oh god <laughs> like we're never gonna do this but it was at night where we checked one time and you could just see the eye shine in the trap and we all looked at each other and we were like oh my god <laughs> there's something in there is it a lynx we don't know and we walked up and it was a lynx and it was like i think we all screamed and probably scared the crap out of this lynx but um <laughs> but then after trapping them it's this whole production of we worked with a vet we worked with um dr michelle oakley who some people may know from her show on Nat Geo Wild, Dr. Oakley, Yukon Vet. She volunteered her time with us, um, kind of out of the kindness of her heart, but also just her interest in, in lynx and wildlife and, and research. Um, and so we would call her and she would come and then we'd drug the animals. So we used a, in some cases, we used a jab stick. So it's like a, a needle on the end of a long stick and you just reach into the trap and poke the animal in the leg with it. Other times we would transfer them to this crate that we could kind of squeeze the animal to the back of the crate where there was mesh. And then you could actually hand inject the animal. It was a little bit more stressful for the lynx probably to be squished, but there was a lot more control over where you put the syringe and you mm -hmm. could make sure it was going into their leg and not, not somewhere else. Um, and then I would fall asleep and then we would collar the animal and take blood and take measurements and check for injuries and um, give them an ear tag and all that stuff. And then we would release it where we caught it um, after it was given a chance to wake up. And by the end, I, we caught like, I would say almost a hundred animals over the course of our wow. project, oh. which like at the start, we were like, okay, one, <laughs> Woo. Um, some of them were recaptures, like some of them were the same individual that we recaptured every year, but mm -hmm. it like, yeah, to this day, just mind blowing of the number of links I got to interact with or pet or collar or whatever. It was pretty cool. Yeah. I, I would imagine a recapture would almost be even more uh, skillful in the sense of, you know, like fool me once, shame on <laughs> you, fool me twice, shame on me kind of scenario. Yeah. Um, after a hundred encounters though, like was, did anything, was there any like missteps to get out, you know, attack one of the, the undergrads or something like that? Or like, was there like, or was it all pretty smooth operating? Honestly, I was also surprised about that. It was, I would say it was never like 100% smooth in terms of like, it's a wild animal. There's always stuff that's exciting and interesting, but we never had an animal like die or, or get injured or, um, wow. That's actually never quite had remarkable. A get injured. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. It, and like, knock on wood, it, and even the vet said, like, if you trap enough animals, you will, one will die because an animal can have like kidney problems or heart problems or, or whatever. And you just don't know. And they're just walking around in the wild and maybe would die from a natural cause for some other reason. Um, but then you're trapping in and it just so happens it dies when, when you have it. And the probability of that happening increases as you trap animals. So she did mentally prepare us like, an animal could die even if you don't do anything wrong. It's just the reality of this. Mm -hmm. um, but we luckily didn't. It would have, I'm really like, it would have been very heartbreaking. Like you realize kind of how invasive 
this is when you're doing it. Like you have this animal and it's stressed out and, and you're drugging it and you're collaring it and all this stuff. And, and there's a lot of debate over the ethics of, of collaring animals um, and things like that. But especially from like a public perception mm-hmm. um, framing, but at the same time too, you understand like we did everything in our power to make sure this animal was safe and like good and, and we didn't have anything bad happen. And then, the amount of information we get from that animal the fact that we recaptured some of these animals every year for five years we knew that it survived those five years um and so we we had a good idea that we weren't doing anything that was necessarily like harming these animals over the long term but it yeah it it did like cause a little bit of dissonance in my mind of on one hand i was so grateful to be having these encounters with these animals that i would have never been able to have then on the other hand it's like it is a bit disruptive to their life um but trying to do it in the best way possible and ensuring that we get really good data out of it and that we do things with the data instead of just like letting it sit on a shelf Mm. um, as a way to kind of say thank you to the animal for Mm -hmm. the stress that it gave to our project and stuff but chase i know you've been involved in your share of captures um and like a hundred with no fatality seems almost remarkable to some extent because like i know at least i've i think i've heard with some of the larger mammals like moose like the the fatality rate for for capturing moose can be quite high for example um like chase do you have any insight into like not to throw anyone under the bus but it's just, <laughs> it, it does seem to be like one of those those elements of animal research is if you're handling them in that manner sometimes stuff can go sideways and the, the fact that you managed to do 100 was quite remarkable yeah, some of the stuff that I seen on my end was like, obviously a lot of the work was was out of like a helicopter. So a um, couple factors there is like the animals already stressed and running, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it's and it's building up body heat, and then once you immobilize it, it's like it doesn't really have anywhere for that body heat to expel, especially if you mm-hmm. if you're tranquilizing it and reducing its heart rate, which is like how they normally mm-hmm. expel stuff. But um, yeah, there was definitely some fatalities. Most of them were, were like more due to like bodily injuries, like a moose mm-hmm. breaking its neck kind of thing because it was fell the wrong way or mm-hmm. uh, a caribou did die once because it was like they got captured and it just died. And mm-hmm. they, they figured it just had a heart attack or something like that. But um, polar bears were like the, the ones that we tranquilized a lot. And the biggest risk for them was overheating and them getting tranked in some sort of water body mm-hmm. and having to like keep them out of the water so that got pretty interesting mm-hmm. sometimes but i don't think we've ever i don't think um i had a bear that died from being under like being um tranquilized or something happened after but they're definitely mm-hmm. more susceptible to other predators as well after that too which is which is another dynamic to think about because they were one thing we always made sure of is like there was no other animals, bears or anything around when after we left a, a, a bear to to wake up kind of thing because the the way nature is, you know, they just mm-hmm. if they can get an upper hand on another male, it's lights out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've never experienced like collaring or mobilizing large animals like that, but I I remember in our 
course that we had to take to do it. There was a lot of conversation about uh, overheating and call. I think it's called like capture myopathy or yeah. of, of these large animals where they get so stressed and they overheat and their muscles just start like deteriorating basically. Yeah. And luckily, we didn't have to chase these lynx around. We we captured them, and I sure I'm sure they were stressed, but they weren't like running and running and running. And mm-hmm. I think that helped our case a lot. We had to worry a little bit about hypothermia, but we often handled them in an enclosed area where it was a bit warmer. So yeah, I think it is interesting, but um, caribou actually get some sort of like pneumonia or something too. They can get mm-hmm. if they're improperly immobilized and like mm-hmm. held down for too long. So I remember like the, the guys that were doing the collaring were like, they, they wanted to do all the work cause they didn't want anything else to go a second longer than they had to. Cause it was like, Mm-hmm. boom in and out and like under a minute kind of thing was their ideal capture mm-hmm. and release kind of thing mm-hmm. maybe not under a minute but it was it was very short mm-hmm. so kind of crazy very specialized work very with yeah. uh, a lot of open ends i would imagine a lot of uh, unknown variables out there including cds and uh <laughs> <laughs> like, can you imagine coming walking through the bush and like just seeing this thing up in the tree i'd be like what the yeah I, I would think I'm in a bad Nicolas Cage movie or something like that. <laughs> like this shit's about to get real weird real quick. Yeah. Um, while we wrap up on the links here, Ali, I just wanted to know, like, um, was there anything that like through your research, did you, did anything surprise you or were you like, was there some findings or some, some learnings about the links that really kind of shifted your paradigm here? Um, yeah, I, for me, one of the like, I think being able to interact with and see links just like really reignited my fascination with nature. Like I, I didn't go into research being like, I want to interact with this species that no one ever sees, but it just reminded me of how crazy nature is. And, mm-hmm. and this whole lynx snowshoe hair cycle, you know, they're around in tons some years and then they completely crash and they're gone and they come back and it's like how and why and all those things so I think part of like the surprise for me was just simply being able to like observe and be around and be reminded of all these crazy things that go on in nature and being snowshoeing a lot and spending a lot of time in the forest and getting to actually be kind of in their environment um but the again with like the audio recorders and the hunting and stuff like that it was really interesting with the hunting behaviors, um, just learning about different individuals and how some would be really successful whenever they would chase an animal, they would kill it and others would have to chase something like 20 times before they caught one. And mm-hmm. just the fact that, you know, like a lynx isn't a lynx, isn't a lynx. Like they have all these different like abilities and personalities and things like that. And some would eat only snowshoe hares and others would eat a variety of things. and just the fact that like a wild animal isn't the exact same as, as every other wild animal. But there was also a lot of cool things that there was a lot more like vocalization and social type interaction that we heard through the, the audio recorders where cats are known to be very solitary and kind of anti-social animals, but even anti-social animals have social encounters and social lives because they're not living in a vacuum or in a bubble. Um, but I think the social lives of, of wild animals are a lot more complex than we give credit for. And there was a lot more overlap 
among their home ranges and there was um a lot more interaction even among adults like it's thought that female lynx have a, a kitten and then in about a year that kitten moves on and then they have another one and that's kind of the only time there are these groups of animals mm-hmm. but we saw evidence of adults kind of interacting and hanging out with each other through the audio recorders but also through trail cameras and we actually caught three links at the same time in a single trap once and so it's just like interesting to learn about all these things that we don't know about these animals and we didn't have answers as to why it was happening but just more questions i guess and so yeah i guess just the ability to once you can actually sit with and observe and hang out with wild animals for a long time it's crazy what you learn and and i'm sure i'm like preaching to far a little bit in terms of like a lot of a lot of hunters a lot of people who spend time on the land and, and tracking animals and observing animals just know a lot about the way mm-hmm. those animals work that you can't necessarily read in a textbook or or figure out with with numbers and stuff and yeah it was just really cool it was my first kind of experience getting to like get to know this area of the forest and these animals mm-hmm. that well i'm i'm curious to um, did you at all find out like what the what the local trappers numbers were for like what they were hauling in for lynx every season I, f- I feel like the the amount of lynx you guys you guys had trapped is uh significant it's crazy i'm yeah so really impressed when, <laughs> <laughs> well when we started i think so that's over five different winters and um a portion of them were recaptures so maybe there were like mm. 50 or 60 actual individuals um but we started when the lynx were at an increase in their population numbers. And then our second year, they were at like a peak density. And oh, like some of the trappers those years were slaying lynx. <laughs> like <laughs> like uh. there, there aren't that many trappers in that region, but like some of them were taking like dozens and dozens of lynx um, in the winter. And one thing like, so we had ear tags at every single links that we captured and then another student had an array of trail cameras in the forest and only something like 25 percent of the links that we captured had ear tags on her pictures oh, wow. and we thought that we had like captured every links in the valley when we had trapped that many links they're we like oh we're doing so well like there's not it's not possible that there's like more links than this out there that's crazy but yeah only like a small percentage of the animals she saw on her trail cameras had ear tags. So wow. it's also like another interesting, like there are way more animals out there than, than we know. And then we think, cause we would kind of go by how many tracks we would see, or if we saw a trap kind of being messed with, um, it would be like, Hey, there's an animal here. There's an animal here. But it turns out that there's probably like four times as many animals there than we actually thought. That's cool. And so you, you've, you've made it through squirrel camp here. You've, you've, done some significant research on links and you're 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 also completed your your doctorate um you're you're now teaching as well like we we've talked a little bit about generations and kind of the vision that we we want to leave behind but like what what advice would you have for students or persons interested in getting into like kind of the the research aspect here and wanting to to look at that because I I know you've had uh, you know quite the experience or like a lot of experience in that realm as well too right there's uh, 
a few sides to that coin, if if you would like, what what would you say to a student coming into this and wanting to to learn more about a lynx or a beaver, or like something, <laughs> anything of that that manner? Um, that is a really good question, and actually applied for a few jobs to be a prof. So I kind of do see myself being someone who will have to field a lot of these questions into the future. So I've put a little bit of thought into them, but um, the first piece of advice I think would be um, actually like follow your passion in terms of what wants, what made you want to do that. Like I think especially through grad school when you get into the slog of like analyzing data and writing a thesis and all those things you kind of lose the like why am I doing this because you're not in the field and you're not doing the fun pieces but if you can kind of hold on to why you wanted to do it in the first place for a lot of people it's their love of nature their love of the environment their attachment to a certain species their you know those things and i think that those are really strong like people have a very strong connection to the environment a lot of times and, and value in that and value in conserving that and so i think it's like university can kind of beat that out of you through sheer boredom and like <laughs> annoying tasks but kind of holding on to that i think is a really good of advice um my second would be to seek out a person who has similar values to you there's a lot of interesting research going on on a lot of interesting animals and there's no shortage of research questions out there but to find a supervisor or someone to work with that has the same interests and values as you is kind of irreplaceable and will really help you find your niche and find your way through school um you know, I, I could have chosen someone else to do research with that was doing research on polar bears or whales or plants or bumblebees or whatever. And, and I'm sure I would have fallen in love with any of those projects if done in the right kind of setting. I also could have hated this project on links if done in the wrong setting. So I think it's like there's so much to learn about the environment and there's so many different cool things going on that it really surround yourself with good people and people that share the same value as you and the same value for the environment. Um, I think that would really help a lot too. Um, and then I guess the final thing is no one loves every part of their job all the time. And there's a lot of really hard things. There's a lot of really annoying and boring things with university. Like a lot of it is actually BS, <laughs> but if you can use it to get to where you want to go or to get the experiences you want to get and, and for me, a lot of the time was getting to spend four years in the Yukon. I survived the BS parts in order to get that experience and to meet the people I met and, and things like that. So I don't think university is the be all end all of life. I don't think it, you need a university degree to be smart or anything, but I think you can use university and education to gain experiences and exposure to things to help you further your own goals and passions and, and things like that and I think that that's maybe what I would tell people especially people that maybe aren't the classic like bookworm academic person who's like oh yeah university is what is my goal in life but it's like you could kind of use it to to get to places that maybe you want to go that you didn't think you'd be able to it's still vastly inaccessible to a lot of people and that's a whole nother conversation but if you can use it to kind of advance your own goals and 
and passions and stuff, it, it can lead you to a lot of really cool places and experiences and, and people. Mm. Find your find your squirrel camp. Is, <laughs> is, uh, I'll make a poster that says that. Yeah, find your squirrel camp. Um, we we didn't get to your current research, and I, I apologize for that. I was actually just so preoccupied with squirrel camp that I uh, I couldn't help myself. Um, but uh, I can quickly uh, comment on it if you want, or give a quick pitch if you want. Sure. Yeah. Do you want to just like <laughs> give us kind of like where what what it's about and. Um, you know, the meaning of it, because the, the meaning of it sounds like that's where the real meat and potatoes is, at least for mm-hmm. me, not mm-hmm. to tell you about your own research. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think too, it might be of interest to your listeners, if I'm kind of correct in my thinking of who might be listening to me speak right now. But um, yeah, so with absolutely no experience working on moose previously, I've found myself working on moose. Um but kind of through a slightly indirect path. And the real purpose of it is to support community-led wildlife monitoring. Um, So I'm working with First Nations and potentially in the future Métis uh, communities in Manitoba and Ontario to help them develop uh, wildlife monitoring programs in their own territories. And moose has come up a lot as the main priority um people are observing moose declines and and unhealthy moose and i think that's not really a surprise to a lot of people in central canada at the moment um but because moose are so wide-ranging and um provinces are big there is actually a real like lack of capacity from the government to properly monitor every possible spot they need to monitor and and things like that. And so um, I think these community-led monitoring programs have the potential to not only serve as a way to increase the capacity for monitoring of these species in the province, but also serve as a a way for Indigenous communities to kind of exert their, their rights to stewarding their own territories and exert kind of self-determination and in respect to the environment and making decisions with the land and all of that but i i do really see it as a a way forward where kind of everyone wins like i i don't think anyone would say more data on these species that we care about is a bad thing and having more people working on acquiring that information is a bad thing i don't think anyone would would say that um And of course, there's a lot of politics involved in a species like moose. There's a lot of people that care about moose and care about having access to moose and um, now and into the future. But I think fundamentally what what I'm what I'm working on or what I'm trying to do with my research is to create a path forward where um, more people have a say in, in what happens and more people have uh, true involvement and like partnership in, in collecting information um, and feeding that information into decisions that are made. And so on the ground, it's a lot of like study design and and how do you actually collect information about moose that's useful and, and how do we make sure that local land user knowledge is infused into that and stuff. Um, but the bigger picture is to try to just get more information and get more people involved in um, 
how information is collected, why it's collected, what's done with it once it's collected, and, and who gets to make decisions about, about moose and wildlife and stuff. So, yeah. for for clarity, Ali, the the kind of the traditional model that we we work off of for for this is like the data really informs the conservation models that we use uh, for things like moose management. Um, like one, how does how does some of your research differ from maybe more of those traditional methods? And two, what what are you hearing on the ground about moose? Because you're right, like I think it's a huge uh, a huge topic for people in Manitoba here. But like what I and and all across the prairies, like you mentioned, like what do you? But what are you hearing on the ground? Like people are passionate about it clearly. Yeah, the classic wildlife management model is. Um, a few individuals make decisions for everyone <laughs> based on information that they collect. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's like the worst possible model or that that completely doesn't work. It's just a model that was made by crown governments to serve the purposes of crown governments. And now we're moving more into an area where it's recognizing that there's a lot of different people that actually care about these decisions and have useful things to say and there's an increase in citizen science too it's not just from the indigenous lens it's also getting hunters and and people who fish and all those things involved in collecting information about wildlife realizing that these are the people that are on the ground and seeing things happen they're kind of like the front line um but indigenous people it's about that and it's about having people who who are there but it's also about like actual constitutional rights and and recognition of um past wrongdoings and and all of these different things so it's like a bigger a bigger thing and trying to kind of flip the norm on its head and and kind of right some of these past wrongs but i would say on the ground yes people are very passionate about moose people are very passionate about ensuring that there's healthy moose populations into the future and kind of realizing that if we stick with the status quo that might not actually happen um but part of the problem is why are moose dying no one can answer that question really um precisely so it's tough to manage populations we don't fully know exactly why they're dying um and that could differ from location to location um and and harvest is often the first thing kind of attacked because it's the easiest thing to manage. It's easy to say, okay, no more hunting. It's not easy to say, let's fix climate change. Like stop wolves and deer from moving northward and, and affecting moose. Let's stop wildlife disease from spreading. Let's stop logging. Um, but the reality is that there's a lot of gaps in knowledge in terms of what's happening or maybe more accurately, everything's happening all at once. So it's hard to to pinpoint solutions. Um, but again, I think that's a good reason to try to have as many minds and as many people and as many as much information as possible to try to solve these problems instead of um, kind of gatekeeping who gets to make these decisions because it affects everyone really. Like it affects, um, yeah, a lot of people care about moose and a lot of people care about what happens to moose and and it's just one species of many. Um, and so, yeah, it's very complicated, very political, but it's also really important. And mm -hmm. often things that are political and complicated are important. <laughs> so, 
yeah, it's been really interesting. And, and I've, I still don't know that much about moose ecology, which I don't know if I should be admitting out loud, but just the idea of them and the idea of what they represent and, and things like that. I, I think I really am kind of enjoying what I'm, what I'm doing right now. Yeah. They definitely hold a special regard. I, I would say for, I, I don't know, for Chase and I, and I know, you know, your, your comment on your wanting to have your nephew see a, a moose in the wild. I can think back to one of our first podcasts that we've done with Dr. Vince Crichton and, um, that that was a, a remark that Chase had made. He, had, he was a new father at the time, and uh, it was very much the case that we wanted to to ensure this this species was not just around when when our kids are older, but doing well and thriving in, in some ways. So hopefully, with more voices and minds around the table in a in a more equal fashion, that you know we, we get a little bit closer to that reality as opposed to. Uh, the path we're currently trending on unfortunately uh chase did you have any kind of like uh final thoughts here maybe we can start to do a round table we normally do a little round table right at the end here uh chase anything on the the final final oh man um i really enjoyed uh kind of sitting back and, and enjoying the the flow of the conversation it, it's, it's been one of those episodes where i'm just kind of flabbergasted where the time has gone because i'm just so engaged and and and, uh trying to take it all in so um well first off thanks ali for for joining us on the podcast and i think um your the the research that you've done in the past super interesting and i am really hoping that the research that you are doing right now is is um going to have a great impact on on moose populations and the way we understand and the way we manage everything here in Manitoba. And I hope everything goes positive for you (laughs) and us and the moose and everything. Yeah. Uh, Ali, anything you'd you'd like to speak to or or maybe even pitch before you? uh, (laughs) No, I, I think I've talked enough today, but I really appreciate the time to talk about it. And, and thanks for ending. Yeah. Well, Dr. Menzies, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, I learned a lot, not just about uh, links, but camping in the Yukon and the the um, the relationships that can form there as well. So really appreciate you coming on and also affirming that Merino wool is the best base layer available was also <laughs> real helpful for my psyche. Um, so uh, without further ado, uh, yeah, just a huge thanks. Thank you. And that's a wrap for episode 130 with Dr. Allison Menzies. Thank you, Allison, for coming on and joining us again and filling us in about uh, all the brilliant stuff you're doing. Tristan, quick question. If you had your chance to spend three months in squirrel camp, would you? I mean, if all things considered equal, if I didn't, if I could drop my worldly responsibilities and head up there, I don't know. What are, what are we doing up there, I guess, is the big question. I guess so too, right? You'd have to have a purpose up there. Yeah. If I was just going to go there and sit in camp for three months, I don't know. I might go a little batty. You're the camp cook. <laughs> uh, I like cooking. Yeah. If you Now, if you let me bring a rifle up to squirrel camp and said, Tristan, go get a moose. Here's this then we'd be talking. New study. Tristan versus the lynx. How many squirrels fall due to predator Tristan? How many squirrels fall to due to 
competitor links. <laughs> that's 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 one heck of a study. Or, yeah. or rabbits, or rabbits. Yeah. They could put a little one of those sound collars on you and uh, see how you make out. I feel like we're getting down a bit of a rabbit hole here with uh, the scenario. Ba-dum-tsh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, but the yeah, it's it's a fair question, right? Could you do you do you think you could hang out in uh, in camp that long? And obviously, Ali kind of suggested that you can can adapt there quite mm-hmm. uh, quite effectively and, and pretty quick. So, something to think about. Yeah, Chase, do you th- uh, do you feel inclined to go to UConn now? Yeah, I would. I I mean, UConn's been on the list for a long time for me, so. Um, it just seems like one of those places where I've always been really drawn to those places where there's not a whole lot of, uh, infrastructure. I'm sure there's a lot of, still a lot of, uh, impressions made on the land by humans, but you know, as far as being able to get lost and, and, uh, not have anyone find you kind of thing for some reason that draws me to places. (laughs) Totally. So yeah, I'm in you. Nice. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'd love it. Yeah. I think just as long as I'm not hunting squirrels for three months straight. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Right on. A little. Well, uh, if anyone's interested in checking out our store, we got a bunch of gear in there before fall. Check it out. We'd love to see you wearing some panoramic gear in your fall harvest or fall hunting adventures or fall fishing adventures if you're um planning some of them. So check it out. Panoramicoutdoors.com. Sweaters, t-shirts, hats, toques, buffs. Stickers, coffee cups, cutting boards, whatever you need, we got you there. So go check it out, panoramicoutdoors.com. And uh, Tristan, I think that's a wrap for episode 130. Yeah, so hopefully we see you in the woods sooner than later here. I, hey, I did get recognized in home, home hardware there, so that's one thing. But if we don't see you in the woods or on the water, just going to remind you there to keep your powder dry, keep those waders breathable, and keep a few cookies in your pockets. There you go. Catch you next time.